thinking, have you ever wondered, what is the tipping point for God? What is the line with God that if I cross it, I will be abandoned or thrown away or disregarded by God himself? Surely there must be a breaking point with each and every one of us where God just gives up. I mean, if you think about it on a horizontal level, I believe we probably all have those breaking points with our love and kindness towards those around us. I mean, if you curse me or my family, I probably will abandon this relationship. Or if you do something horrific, morbid, or mortifying, I assume I more than likely will remove my affection from this relationship. Now, I hope somebody can bear witness with me that our love or our affection or our kindness or our generosity is far more contingent or limited or restrictive or transactional or conditional than we'd probably like it to be. And since we, for the most part, don't exhibit unconditional affection for all those around us, that since we have breaking points, so must God. Since we have breaking points, so must God. It's easy to project upon God those same conditions we see in ourselves. But then as we read the Bible, or as we learn to understand the God of the Bible, we see that what if there was no line with God? What if there was no tipping point? What if there was no action too cruel, no word too foul, no thought too evil, that God would then all of a sudden withhold? This is known as the doctrine and the reality of of grace. Now sadly, I believe this doctrine, and maybe you even felt it right now, you're like, oh, it's it's grace. I believe this doctrine, sadly, has potentially been domesticated. I think it's been put in a stable and broken and domesticated. It's been stolen from the wild. I mean, it's a word that has so lazily just been associated with, you know, a rhyming prayer before dinner. Somebody say grace. Or it's just seen now as some sort of religious buzzword for the church or even for myself years. Even in ministry, years using this word without really mining its depths and riches. Sadly, it falls flat in majority's ears when spoken of. Maybe like it did tonight. And has become, I was thinking, a sort of decaffeinated way of living. Of looking at the way... God interacts with every individual on this planet. So, if I were to ask you to define grace, what would you write down? If I were to ask you to define grace, what would you say? Christian or not in this room, what is your impression of grace as a whole? Are there words in your definition like undeserved favor or unmerited kindness? Ideas like Getting what we don't deserve. Do I remember that from Bible college? Getting what we don't deserve. Now I'm not here knocking those very accurate descriptions. They do the job of defining grace. But dare I say that they don't do an offensive enough job of describing grace. They're not offensive enough. Because grace is offensive. To know grace is to be wrecked. To know the grace of God as either somebody who follows Jesus or somebody who denies Jesus is offensive. 
And if it, that's true, if that's true, it's no wonder that then the doctrine of grace has been called dangerous. And that's what I want us to see with open ears and open hearts tonight, how grace is the axe to the root of our everything. Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance explains it way better than I do. He says, Grace is costly to man because it lays the axe to the root of all his cherished possessions and achievements, not least in the realm of his religion. See, this quote could not be more perfect. I love this quote for our verses tonight because where grace is, the grace is the axe to the redwood of this man's soul. See, whereas we just read, Saul of Tarsus converges with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, from our time together, if you guys remember, over the suffering series, when we were introduced to Saul, what do you remember about him from that time? Was it just high fives and cupcakes? Was that Saul? Far from it. If you remember, Saul gave the church one of the most powerful blows it's ever experienced. If you remember, we described his persecutions on the Christians as a predator in the wild hunting its prey. And as you can see in verse 1, look down at verse 1, nothing has changed. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So these breathing threats is like heavy breathing as a hunting animal runs and searches for its next meal. Simply Saul was a monster, he was a wolf, he was heartless, he was intolerant, he was a bully, he was a terrorist. And this monster is on to do what he does best. He's continuing to do what he does best, and that's devour. To repeat as many times as possible what happened in Acts chapter 7. And that's to see how many Christians he can crush under stones. How many Christians he can throw rocks at. And this wasn't some pastime for Saul. If you guys know this, again, remember this. In his mind, he's convinced that Christianity is heresy. He's convinced Christianity is absolute heresy. It's the whole thing to be villains. You know, villains don't believe or realize that they're the bad guy. Have you heard that thing? Have you heard that saying? That they're fighting a cause that is believed to be just as valid as the protagonist. See, that is Saul. Saul no longer just stays in Jerusalem, but he leaves home base and he goes out hunting. Damascus has potential reports of people converting to Christianity, so he makes proper preparations for his hunt. Look down at verse 2. And asked him, the high priest, that would be the same one as Caiaphas, who was the same one involved in the execution trials for Jesus, and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus where these Christians would have been hanging out. So basically, I need my search warrant or my hunting license. And he got it for the city of Damascus. And just so you guys know, for your own study and understanding, like, Damascus was like outrageously beautiful. Beautiful. History tells us that it was described as a handful of pearls in a goblet of emerald. Basically telling us that, I mean, there was like green lush surrounding this white stone city. In fact, more historians recognized it, most historians recognized it, as the paradise of the earth. So back to verse 2. So if any, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he would bring them bound to Jerusalem. See, the way was just what people called Christians before they were Christians, before they were called Christians. So he's on this 130 mile, 160 mile pike, and as 
we read, something happens. As we read, something happens. Grace crashes on the scene. This offensive grace crashes on the scene. And for the most part, most of us sit back right now and potentially go, good. I'm glad grace crashed. Good for him. That's absolutely right. Bad guys becoming good guys. We hear about this. We go, yeah, villains becoming heroes. Losers becoming winners. Good job, Jesus. <laughs> See, that's what religion's supposed to do, right? That's what it's supposed to do. In collective church, or even again, those here who don't follow Jesus, this is the part where I tell you where grace becomes offensive. Like we were saying earlier. See, yes, Saul was a walking nightmare, but he was also impeccable. Saul was impeccable. I mean, if you were looking for the supermodel of religious goodness, you'd bring Saul in for headshots. I mean, his lineage, his ancestry, his training, his devotion brought Saul at a very young age to like the religious peak. I was thinking, and this is how my silly brain works, I mean, he's the Mark Zuckerberg of religiosity, he's the Ryan Gosling of Pharisees, he's the Josh Groban of Lockheed. He's at the top. You love Josh Groban, don't you? <laughs> Listen to Saul describe himself and his merits. These are his own words to the Christians in Philippi. This is what he says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I have more. Circumcised, and it goes on this list, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness under the law, blameless. See, if Jesus is in the business of looking for evil men, there was no one darker than Saul. But yet, while on the flip side, if Jesus is in the business of looking for good moral people, there was no one greater than Saul. Saul would be willing to stack his religious life in devotion to that of any person out there. He's saying here, to whatever amount that you've worked, or earned, or strived, to whatever amount you attended church services, you put money in the basket, you went to neighborhood dinners, you went to discipleship group, you read the Bible reading plan, whatever amount that you served, gave, prayed, and read, I have more. I did it more. I want you guys to hopefully start seeing why this is offensive as we're getting closer and closer. Because no matter how evil we are, or how blameless with the oceans of grace, we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. See, Saul is both sides of the coin. He is murder and mastery. He is perfection and perversion. He is faithful and he is frightening. There's not a thing we can do, no matter what side, to save ourselves. And hear me, there's not a thing we could do, a thing we can offer to make God love us. One author and priest says it very simply. It says, grace works without requiring anything on our part. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. And all of this, I was thinking for our community, is terrifying. It's terrifying for us. 
For anyone here, or all here, who loves to be in control, that's a terrifying thought. And that is shattering to anyone who believes the principle of morality versus God's free grace. Now before we get into it too much, I want us to see exactly what happened here with Saul in Acts 9. What's been so easily called the most famous conversion in church history. Look down at verse 3. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul later described this light as brighter than the midday sun. What brightness that even Saul, an incredible writer, could barely describe its radiance. That somehow it's brighter than the brightest light we know of in our existence. And yet, at least I can only imagine that it wasn't, you know, the, the warmth of a winter's fire type of comfort and care. You know that sinking feeling when police headlights show up in your rearview mirror and you see those lights shining? And how all of a sudden these lights just make you out of sorts? I believe there could have been some of that emotion. Now really imagine this. We live here in sunny California. Every day is summer. Every day is brighter than the midday sun. <laughs> the midday sun is painful. I was thinking it would be painful to look at it any amount of time. I was trying to do today. I was prepping. The sun was coming to the window. I'm, like, I'm just going to see how long I can go to give a great sermon illustration. I went like four minutes. I, my doctor's visit was painful. But I'm not sure any of us have experienced a light so bright that it knocks us to the ground. Has anybody experienced the light so bright that it knocks you to the ground? To call it blinding, I was thinking, is an understatement. And then just to be there in that moment, the only thing that could be more polarizing than this light is then to hear your name spoken from. From this intrusion, because that's what grace is. It's, it's, it's an intruder. And so this light's happening and you hear Saul, Saul. The Saul, Saul here is interesting the more often than not, repetition of a name refers to an exhortation. So whether it's Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon, or O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. So here Saul, Saul is far more of a rebuke and warning than anything else. It's Saul, Saul. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Why are you persecuting me? I love this. I love this. I love how unified Jesus is with his people. Look at how Christ's question presupposes that Jesus is resurrected and alive. Do you guys see? Look how Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He goes, Salsa, why are you doing this to me? What's the deal? And then Saul asks one of the greatest questions one should ask. Verse 5, and he said, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Now that's, that's a very sweet moment. Who are you? I am Jesus. Let's not forget, Saul has hated. Saul's hatred was embodied in the person of Christ Jesus. Everything this man has hated is in the name of Jesus. 
Saul's entire purpose was breathing in and breathing out the destruction of all things Jesus Christ. So for him to go, for him to hear, I am Jesus. What emotions did he feel in the moment? When Jesus introduced himself, was he angry? Was he fearful? Was it confusion? See, what I love about the grace of God is by disorienting us, it actually properly orients us. Meaning Saul's life is literally just turned upside down in a moment. And that is exactly what the grace of God, embodied in the person and work of Jesus, should do to each and every one of us. And this transcends Saul, but it's the truth for all of us. And this is the archetype I want us to grab a hold of tonight within Acts 9. That this all transcending, doesn't discriminate, applies to the archetype of grace tonight for all of us. Please allow me just to, to rant for a moment about how beautiful grace is, and yet at the same time, sort of upheaves our life. I mean, grace will deliver us to the very end of ourself, like Saul. Yet it invites us to fresh starts and new beginnings. See, grace makes us face our profound weaknesses, yet at the same time bestows us with newfound strength. Grace will break us harder than we've ever been broken before, yet we, we will realize through that we've never been more whole. Grace heralds again and again who we aren't, who you aren't, who you aren't, yet welcoming us over and over again to what we can be. Grace makes us radically, radically uncomfortable. We think about grace, we should be uncomfortable, yet at the same time, grace offers a lasting comfort more than we've ever before known. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? I didn't for years. In my youth and in my maturity and in my ignorance. And I still battle to believe it in its entirety today. Wanting to believe that even in my darkest moments, God delights in me. Delighting not in my sin, but in the sinner. To know intimately there's no breaking point for God's love and grace. I had this Christianity, and I don't know if you guys did either, but I had this Christianity of like retribution or transaction with Jesus. That's how I was raised. That's what I did. That's who I thought Jesus was. Essentially, if I did good, Jesus was happy. If I sinned, watch out for Jesus. He was furious. So if we were to boil, I was thinking, if we were to boil my bad theology down to its bones, it was that my obedience, not Christ's obedience, is what atoned for me. See, it's taken me years and the daily decision to believe that neither I can either earn God's grace with mortality, you know, mortality and, and, and work, morality, excuse me, and work, nor do anything so hear this, or do anything so insidious that He would then leave me out to dry. Has this line of thinking? I, been true for anybody else here. To believe and know that God and His grace is stubborn, I mean, He has stubborn delight and desires to still be near. Stubborn delight to still be near to us. Sinful, rebellious, anti-God by nature. We are anti-God by nature. Brendan Manning, who on one hand, absolute incredible minister, incredible priest, has rocked my world. He, at the same time, on the other hand, was a very secret, alcoholic, 
many times would wake up in random places around the city by dumpsters, and he'd go on these preaching tours, write best-selling books, all with this tormented vice. And yet his words have meant so much to me that I recently found out having a conversation with somebody who's close to him that he could barely believe in God's grace. He struggled with it every day, preaching it, and yet as he's just drinking gallons of hard liquor, he could barely believe God's grace. But anyway, these are his words, and I hope they rock us tonight. He goes, do you believe, and these are this very famous quote, do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? Beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain? That he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it? Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? And loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? See, God desires you and I despite, despite our gluttony, our drunkenness. He loves us despite our fornication or adultery. He loves us despite our addiction to pornography. Despite our pride and self-righteousness and how much we've stolen, how much we hide. God's grace, His unwarranted kindness wants to still be near. And not just with the addicts and the abusers, but with God's grace. God's grace is an absolute need for both ends of the spectrum. Both ends of the spectrum. So hear me out. For both the porn star and the stay-at-home moms. For both the Eagle Scouts and those found guilty. For both pastors and pedophiles. For both convicts and Christians. Grace for both the man who decides to walk into a gay bar in Orlando and open fire. And for those whose lives were viciously taken at a gay bar in Orlando. We all need grace. We all need grace. God's love and God's forgiveness goes out purely and equally. And by the very nature, it cannot indiscriminate or play favorites. I hope that this is an axe to the root of the way we see God, if it's been distorted, of the way we see ourselves, that we need grace. And the way we view grace at collective churches, we all need Jesus. When we say we need grace, we need to say here we need Jesus. Theologian Michael Horton, I'll read it if it doesn't come on the screen, says, In grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing or substance mediated between God and sinners, but it is Jesus. But it is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. See, whether you believe that or not, the point is, Jesus was pursuing Saul, hunting him down in the same way that Saul was hunting down Christians. Not to take their life, but rather to give life. And this is true for you and I as well. I mean, he is hunting and pursuing you even in this moment. If you continue, if you have continued to deny who he is. See, think about it. There are some 2,000 different religions in the world. Some 2,000 or something like that. The difference that Christianity has with each and every one of them is a concept of grace in the work and person of Jesus. Every other faith system pushes you to be good to get. 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that freely gives whether despite your good or bad. Now, at least for me, that just struggles to compute. That's why there's nothing fair about the grace of God in Jesus. There's just nothing fair about it. See, Saul would tell us later about the same encounter. He would tell us of another question from Jesus in Acts 26. He says, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now for a long time, when I would hear a Bible teacher say this, I always thought he was saying goats with a T on the end. And I was like, yeah, go kicking is hard. <laughs> Jesus apparently knows. But do you know what a goad is? I mean, they would, goads would be that something that had a long stick, and at the end of it, they would have these like, long nails to pierce and to drive into the ox. And so when the ox would hesitate, they'd pierce them. And the ox would then you know, continue on. Now, a stubborn ox might resist and kick against the goads, bringing pain only to himself. The goad's not like, yo, it hurts. It brings only pain to himself. See, Saul is that resistant, stubborn ox to the goad of all things Jesus, which is such a perfect setup, in my opinion, for me to ask if there's anybody today kicking against the goads. Look at a preacher's dream for that question. Is there anybody today kicking against his grace or his calling or his drawing near or Jesus. If that is you, please hear me. Please, please, please hear me. See, God is gracious. As we were just saying, God is gracious. But we still must choose and choose again and again and again and again to receive and follow his son. Let's wake up every day and go, I choose again Daily, the Bible would say, taking up this cross. If anyone, if one were here to step out from this life tonight, God forbid, or tomorrow, both of which are not promised to us, but if that were to happen today, and you were not thrust into the presence of God, that heaven was not your final destination, hear me out. It wouldn't be because you cheated. It wouldn't be because you got drunk. It wouldn't be because you got a DUI. It wouldn't be because you were promiscuous or you got a fight. It'll be because of kicking against the goats and resisting the very grace that we're talking about tonight. It'll be because one did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their life. And that is the only reason. That is the only reason. The grace is God moving heaven and earth to save you and I who could not lift a finger to save herself. Grace is God sending his only son to basically descend on the hell of a cross so that the ones who put them there, the ones who put Jesus there, might be reconciled to God and receive heaven. Heaven is not reserved for good people. Heaven is not reserved for good people only for essentially grace-covered forgiven people who call Jesus their king. I can guarantee you if someone would have stopped Saul, think about him, someone would have stopped Saul on his journey as he's about to head out and he goes up and goes, Saul, buddy, by the time you get to the end of this road, your life is going to be in Jesus. Saul would have been like, kill this man. 
<laughs> Somebody killed this man. But of course, no one calculated the unexpected grace of God. Look at verse 7. Men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I mean, could you just imagine? Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was out of sight, and he neither ate nor drank. For even though Saul is temporarily blind, I think it's very clear that this is the clearest he has seen in his entire existence. Reminding all of us of that very famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet This Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I love how author John Calvin describes the transformation of Saul's conversion. He says, not only is such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. That's pretty epic. Simply, grace transforms. It's not something that all of a sudden we just, yeah, great, believe it. Grace transforms us. We are watching grace transform Saul. Again, I, I know by me sort of explaining grace this way, defining grace this way, some would say that I've cheapened it. Some would say that I've cheapened grace, that I've even ruined grace. To be loved wholly as we are, even in the midst of evil, or you know, evil actions. Or that if God really does love us like I'm saying, then why in the world do we not just embrace sin? If I can do whatever I want, and that doesn't change one thought of God towards me, all right then, let's send our brains out. Let's do it. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's get greedy, pornography. Let's punch people in the face. Let's listen to Creed. Whatever's <laughs> sinful. <laughs> I heard a pastor, I heard a pastor once said, I heard a pastor once describe this mindset. This mindset of like, great, Let's send our brains out. So as a wife would tell her husband, you can cheat on me, but I will, I will forgive you, and I will love you, and I will make this work. Even if you cheat on me, forgive you, love you, and make this work. So essentially, that mindset that we are just describing is to be able to hear this and go, great, sweetie, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want with whomever I want. How jacked is that mindset? Thank you for loving and caring for me. I'm going to abuse it. How black is the heart that takes the stunning beauty of God's grace and willingly defiles it knowing that the gracious party will forgive. To embrace the very things Christ was put to death for. Saul's own words on this issue were, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? He goes, by no means. Grace transforms. Simply grace transforms. You see, God's grace is arguably one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It reaches us where we are and takes us where God wants us to be. Grace and the power of the Holy Spirit can do something that none of us can do on our own. It transforms us. It transforms us at the very core of who we are. Our identity. Our standing with God. Our strength for living our serving, our, sufficient, our sufficiency, our, our times of suffering, and the way and our perspective of other people. See, not only does grace give us a correct perspective of God and ourselves, but of others. Others. 
See, this community, this community, I'm talking about collective church right now, this community will be most attracted when the message of grace is most apparent. We will only be affected. We will only be affected if there is evidence of grace in our life, in our apartment complex, in the way we deal with people at work who are gossiping and slandering others. We will only be effective uh, if we have grace when we parent or serve or love or give or neighborhood dinners or whatever it could possibly be. Our understanding of the grace of God, again, transforms us. No longer are we working to earn and no longer are we only loved and accepted when you're good or when I'm good. Now in closing, I know this topic is huge. No one sermon can ever change the world. And I know there's been a billion books written on this subject. So many books. So let's take it a step at a time for this small community. Tonight, let's just pray and seek an even bigger comprehension of what it means to be loved unconditionally by God due to His grace. Again, this kills me because I have a horrific self-worth issue. It kills me. But to understand that we are loved, that you are loved, that I am loved unconditionally by God. Let's allow ourselves to really try to get to the point where we can tremble at the doctrine of grace, that he loves us no matter what you've done. Maybe thinking, now I've done some pretty jacked up crap. He loves you unconditionally. Let's get to the point that he doesn't love us because of what we've done. Let's get to the point where he doesn't love us because of what we've done. And that he can never love us anymore. And he's promised to love, never lose any of his love for us or love us even less. I mean, that is grace. Amen? Let's pray.